Hello, and today I'm in Nottingham to meet the photographer, academic, and course leader at the University of Derby, Philip Harris. Hello, Phil. Hi, Robert. And welcome to my podcast. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for agreeing to this talk. Yep. So we hadn't met before, but... I feel I have met you. Online at your format conference. That's right, yeah. But what I was going mm. to say was that you've come recommended, not by one, but by two oh, really? people. Oh, who was that then? I could so, was Gemma. Gemma and um, Tom Hackett. Oh, Tom! Yes. How's Tom these days? He's very well, I saw oh, him. Oh, please send me my very best wishes. I shall do so. Yeah, I am a fan of Tom. I saw him last night. Right. Oh, so, and they, well, they, they both said, you know, you'd be a perfect... Oh, Tom Hackett. I must try and keep in contact. I must make contact with him again. It's difficult to stay in contact. Well, you are when you're as misanthropic as I am. But yeah, I'll have to give a shout. Mm. Well, please do. I mean, yeah. so, well, I ask Tom stations. What a, what, a, what a guy. There you go. That's almost he struck a chord. I don't know Tom very well. But I met Tom when I was teaching at South Knox College and Tom was there and we got chatting and it is so clear that this guy was so involved and committed to the creative process, you know, and to teaching, what have you. Yeah, I, I just really liked him. A kindred spirit. Oh, really. that's fantastic. Yeah. Because what I like about doing this project is that sense of connection mm. that you make and, and making art yeah. can be a very solitary process. Oh, yeah. You, especially, yeah. especially once you're kicked out of the safe confines of, of any sort of academic um, environment. Absolutely, yeah. You're on your own. Yeah. And if you don't do anything, mm. nothing happens. No, not at all. So those connections are, are, are nice, and it's not so much a, like a networky thing. Or so for some mm. people, it is. It's quite a strategic thing. Yeah. <clears throat> but actually, the best types of connections are when they're just they kind of fall into place, really. Yeah, I, I must admit, I'm not particularly good at networking. I, I can certainly see the value in networking. I mean, it's interesting also what you said about if you're not in the academic sphere, would it still might work. Yeah, I think it would actually. You know, I'm sure. No, I'm sure. I, yeah. Well, I, I assume you would. Although I, I work here, I, I, I am very concerned about maintaining an independence. I hardly ever use the university facilities for things. I always use my own facilities. Because that means no matter what happens, no matter where I am or what I do, I can just do it myself. Right. Everything. Yeah. yeah. I never wanted to be a teacher of art and or photography who didn't make work. Because I think you, you lose the thread of the process and you lose the perspective of what you're asking students to do. And what, yes, and why you're doing it in the first yeah, place. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Well, I wanted to come on to talk to you in a little bit about the whole aspect of your teaching and, mm. and the university sphere and that dynamic and how that pans out. But first of all, I, I definitely want to talk to you about your own work as a photographer. Mm. And what I'm interested in is that photography has spanned this uh, digital divide between mm. analog and, and yeah. moving to digital mm. in the last few decades mm. and your work seems to uh, encompass that well could you say a little bit about it yeah I, I mean in a way it's not just actually using the analog or the digital it's actually misusing both i quite like the idea of actually making work that well it explores the kind of the qualities of these mediums no matter what they are and i i, I got into film because i became and I think this happens with people anyway, dissatisfied to some degree with the, the limits of still photography. Well, my limits of still photography, not anybody else, it's just mine. And I remember using Cine years ago as a kind of early 20-something, um, but then being horrified at the expense and just dumping it and not being able to afford to do it. But I managed to get an ancient Bell & Howe camera for not a lot of money. Oh, actually, no, I tell a lie. I started with Bolex 8mm, 
because 16 mil at the time was too expensive. So I was buying these six, these eight mils from the 1950s off eBay and taking them apart and servicing. Because of course what happens is, grandfather would have bought one of these ones to, and with the intention of actually doing all these films, being a filmmaker, put one film through it, never get around to processing it, and it ends up in the attic. And these things are often, you pick them up for like 12, 20 quid or something like that, and they're pristine. And with them being these clockwork wind-up things, no batteries, no circuit boards, no nothing, spinning things and whatever, you, uh, and springs, great, right? It is. They are so stripped back, but they are so tactile and tangible and, and really usable. They really are. It's a bit like cars when you used to be able to service oh, them Oh, don't yourself. get me onto cars. Uh, that's, oh, okay. that's another thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm saying with cars, actually, to be honest with you. If you came to the garage, you'd understand there's engines and gearboxes and whatever everywhere. Uh, and also, an old Saab on the, on the drive doesn't work at the moment. Yeah, it will yeah. do. It will. Oh, yeah, it will do. So I started using 8mm. One of the attractions to using it, it was not not considered a, seri a serious filmmaking medium. Hardly anybody uses 8mm. I thought, right, well, that's, that's a red rag to a bull. That's a reason to use it. And the weird thing about 8mm is you can see why it didn't last very long. Because you, you put this daylight spool in. You film it for two minutes, then you've got to take it out. You've got, then got to turn it round and thread it through again. And you can see it probably terrified the majority of amateur photographers, amateur filmmakers. And of course, Super 8 came along. You just whack it in, finish it, and you send it off. Well, no, I don't want to do that. I want, I want to turn it round and misuse it and whatever. You, and there's lovely things with 8mm that, of course, because you're taking it out and putting it back in again, the ends of the films fog. But then because they fog, you've got that lovely bleeding to when the image starts to appear. So you've got all these great mistakes that can happen with the stuff. And then I didn't want to send the films off. I wanted to process them myself um, and have it all, do it all, right? The whole thing. And just so you've got command over the, the whole process. Command's a funny word to use, but, you know, if, the, if something works out or doesn't work out, it's kind of down to you. So I started, you know, playing with chemicals and doing all sorts of stuff, whatever you. Um, but the other thing about using film is that the first project I did was based around um, Brexit. One of the things that I liked about using these European, um, or continental rather, cameras, because they're Swiss, although the design, I believe, is originally French, is that they date back from the 50s. And of course, that's the, the, the birthplace of the, super, uh, the supranational state of Europe. You know, in response to the Marshall Plan, that's when, I think it's Italy, Luxembourg and Germany, could be wrong, in France, started talking about a group European state. So Standard 8 really originates from that period. So I like the idea of actually using something that was attached to that. So I, I was filming people, film, for filming students actually, young people, and getting their response to camera. Of course they're silent. So when you project the films, you, you're aware of the emotion, the sarcasm, the annoyance, etc, etc, et in the way that the gesture, the expression, whatever. But, and because you can't hear the voice, those qualities of the face, that act of speaking is kind of magnified. And so what I did for Format 19, I projected them onto the sides and inside some polling booths I built. So the idea was that whoever voted, because at the time these people would have been, in 2016, these people would have been too young to vote. And a lot of them, in conversation with them as well, a lot of them, their, their parents and grandparents had voted to leave and they were livid 
that their grandparents actually limited their ability to actually work overseas. So how does, we've kind of circled around on the politics, not, not even the politics of art really, but your art has kind of blended into the kind of political sphere. What's your take on art and politics really? Uh, they're just opposed to each other really. I mean, I, th- I think, depends what you want to do with art. I, I don't think any artist has any obligation to do anything political at all, whatever. However, I think all images are political. And I don't necessarily mean in in the party political sense at all. But you can take photographs of ploughs in a the field. There's still a politics there. You know, if we're facing an ecological crisis, don't tell me that photographs of flowers in, in fields aren't political, because they are. If people say, well, no, they're not. My photographs aren't political. Well, you know, just because you don't think they are doesn't mean they're not. And, you know, if you think about where politics comes from, the idea of polis, people, how can it not be? You know? I mean, Donna Haraway says something really interesting about the Anthropocene, is that the problem that she has with the term Anthropocene is it's centred on, on the human being, and it shouldn't be. It should be centred elsewhere, that we're thinking far too much about ourselves, and we're not thinking about all the other things that we're living with. I think that's really interesting, actually, that um, there's just this slight awareness that's happening in some quarters that actually the kind of the human-centric view of everything mm. is actually the, the centre of balance is so far off kilter yeah. that that's, that's drawing everything yeah. away from, from its natural balance and its natural centre mm. of gravity. Well, I, I just think that natural centre of gravity is, is just... I don't think it's visible. That's the problem. And I think you've got one or two, well, no, you, you have quite a few outposts of discussion and, and discourse that are trying to, you know, people like Haraway, um, who are trying to change our register, because that's what's got to happen. And it still isn't changing. Yeah, I, I, think, I think we've been immensely reckless, but I don't think we're really aware of that. I mean, you, you just think about what you're sitting on. I mean, this is a plastic-covered table. It's MDF, probably, underneath it probably sourced from the Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, you know, all this stuff. And you think, blimey, you know, what should I be using? What shouldn't I be using? And, you know, where do you stop and start with all that? But some's got to change really quite radically because we are, although, and I, and I think there's so many people who are arguing against it, we are surely at some kind of a tipping point. You're sounding really fired up about these issues, and rightly so. Um, I'm interested in that, that going back to the art and your photography, and do you get as fired up about the photography? Is, is, is your response to your frustrations on the political sphere to, to, to get to take it out in through your photography? And you also uh, projected an image of our dear leader on, oh, on, yeah. on the front of your house. Yeah, stay at home. Yeah, I um, I thought that was an interesting moment of you know, our esteemed leader telling everyone to stay at home. I haven't got a problem with anyone saying under the conditions of COVID, stay at home. But it was the way in which the issue of herd immunity was, first of all, um, promoted. And I thought, really? <laughs> You're going to let loads of people die? And I'm thinking... Is this really humane? And actually, I, I, I don't know whether it's 10 days, one week, two weeks, but they came to that decision a little bit late and that cost a lot of lives. And I think it was a bad decision. I think it's really, I, th- I think the, the ethics at stake there are seriously questionable. And also I wanted this kind of big brother effect. 
Well, I was going to say that. Def- so it's at yeah. night. That's at night, and yeah. you've got this huge yeah. image, image of Boris. But on the side of my house, on the side of your the, house, the, the vessel that we're supposed to stay yes. in. Yes. And these these vessels that actually would determine our safety and health. So the actual command was actually imposed upon the very thing that um, that we're being told to stay in. Mm. Yeah. And what did your neighbours think? Uh, not many saw it, actually. I mean, it's, oh, what's he up to again? You know, they, they used to me doing freaky weird things like that. So, I mean, they're very understanding, actually. They're great. But it was, you know, I mean, you, you know, you kid yourself. Oh, it only take half an hour. What, three hours later? You oh. know, do it again. I wasn't quite right. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Yeah, it, it's never a quick job. So, we've talked a lot. In a, you've, you've, taken, you've taken me in an unexpected direction mm. with um, the politics uh, that, that is under the hood, maybe, a little bit yeah. in your work. It's yeah. there, it's there yeah. and it's available. And, you know, it seems like it's, it's an important and integral part of, mm. of what you're trying to, to work on. I was also interested in the whole thing about the analog and digital mm. and when you were saying about clearly how, how you love tinkering with the, the stuff and mm. you you must be really good at it because I, I can't do any of that sort of stuff. So how do you then um, think of working in analog form when we are now in the digital age and the relationship between the two? I, I think there are some real issues with our utter and complete dependence on digital technologies. What are you using to do this recording? It's a little cool, it's, a zoom, it's actually a Zoom, but it's a okay. handy, it's called a mm. Zoom handy yeah. recorder. So what software are you going to be using to edit? Audacity. No, no, that's interesting because Audacity is open license, but a lot of software isn't. You don't own the software, you're given permission to use it. Uh, and also any software that's of a, a certain file type, whether it's an MP4 or whatever, we're, we're given access to this technology via license. You don't own any of this stuff. PowerPoints, Photoshop, all this stuff. Our future access is entirely down to multinational global companies. And that's one hell of a risk. It really is. And that's what concerns me as well about digital technologies. Of course, if anyone wants to see this stuff, I've got to digitize it anyway. Well, I was going to say, but also in the context of teaching photography, mm. do you require of your students that they work in analog forms? Or oh, no. Ha- it's up to them. It's entirely up to them. We don't impose anything upon them like that. What we do in the first year, we teach them analog photography, we teach them digital photography, and uh, we make sure there's a kind of academic stream underpinning the whole thing. The, the, the attitude towards, or my attitude towards, the degree, and it's very much shared by Gemma and other colleagues as well, is that the degree should be underpinned by research, by academic um, work, because that's kind of what the honours bit of a degree means. I don't know, I get the impression that some parts of the sector shied away from that a little bit. I have a problem with that. I, I'm sorry, I, I think that, you know, the things that students learn about researching, reading and writing are so essential to their futures. No matter what they what, what they study, they have to be able to communicate. And a graduate should be able to actually find complex data, interpret complex data, and present it in a coherent manner. And I just think no matter whether you're actually studying fashion, engineering, whatever, that is an absolute life skill that every graduate should have. And I think that some of those skills are maybe not getting the attention they should deserve. And I really think that our graduates benefit a lot from that, I really do think. And also, they really appreciate what they're doing more because they've got the critical background. 
And they realize kind of why they're doing it. And they realize the kind of touchstones that it relates to. Yeah, and they realize where their work sits in the continuum of history and culture and what have you. And I think, I think that's a really important thing to understand when you're at some point during your degree. Definitely. I think if you're going to be, if you're going to specialize in anything, then you almost have a duty to yourself or you owe it to yourself to, to know something about how it's got to where it is yeah, and, and then where yeah. you might plug into it. Or you, you can't understand it. the identity of your medium and, unless you study it. And often what I say to people who I you know, might interview or whatever is you're not here to do photography, you're here to study photography. If you don't want to study photography, have a look somewhere else. If you want to really get to grips with what your work is about and you want to be able to communicate, you want to research and also write, come to Derby. Well, that's fantastic. And maybe that's a, a good place to pause and yeah, have a cup of coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> So we are back after Excellent. a cup of coffee for me. Yeah. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And coffee for you? Yeah, at least I can do. Fantastic. Okay. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your River Film Project mm. in a minute. But first of all, I just wanted to close off the move from analogue to digital and the yeah. where digital um, filmmaking is and whether you keep up with it whether you, everything's moving so fast I don't keep up with anything so but if I were to come on on a, on a course and I mm. was committed to digital filmmaking yeah is it the same principles or you know would you would you be able to teach that as well from your I don't, vantage yeah, point I, yeah I, I, can, I, I can there, there are people here that are better teaching digital filmmaking oh, okay. than I am oh certainly uh, I mean that's the thing about being an academic um, I'm pretty good technically um, I can teach, you know, Photoshop. I can teach raw processing. I can teach very, very rudimentary digital um, film editing. I'm not a specialist by any means. Well, not yet. It's something I need to actually spend a bit of time with. Well, I, you can't do everything. No, 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 absolutely. You know. Well, I was going to say, it's, you know, that, that sense of how do do you know? It's almost mm. a decision. Do you try and keep up, and how do you keep up, and no, whether I, there's any whether there's anything in the digital realm that actually you think wow oh no know, no no, no there is and i think if you, you look at the work of david clairborough for example i think that's stunning work um and I, and I think that is work that really examines the premise of digital media in all sorts of really interesting ways fascinating stuff so yeah i i, I do but i don't feel any under any compulsion to keep up the latest cameras and the latest um software i, I you know what i couldn't give a damn you know if it works it works maybe i should but i'm not my interest in using media is to, apart from its descriptive capacities, is to really in inquire of its status and of its type and of its qualities. And some, I won't mention the name, but someone I have a great deal of respect for, uh, it really is. And she said, you should not, you, be, you should be wary of being, being seduced by your medium. Exactly. And that's the thing. You, you, I think, my, well, my approach is, I'm not... A filmmaker, I, I'll, I'll use whatever I want to use for any reason. I don't want to be regarded as a black and white filmmaker or even a cine filmmaker. I, I don't mind people regarding me as using weird junk. That's great, right? Because it's reassessing this stuff. 
And I think those opportunities to reassess media, I think, are important. Yeah, I am a bit of an analogue junkie, but that's because I like tangible things. I don't want to actually invest a whole load of time and effort uh, and money and whatever in something that I might not have access to. You know, record decks have kind of stayed the same pretty much for several decades, right? And, you, you know, you, someone could pick up a record or piece of film in two or three hundred years' time and work out how to reproduce it. Could they do the same thing with a JPEG or a TIFF? That's one hell of a risk. That is society taking one hell of a risk with its creative products. That's interesting the way you frame it. And so it's not so much a, a sense of nostalgia for its own sake, but as you say, it's a, a, a re-assessment. A, a but also, by kind of flying in the face of the digital movement, it's, it's challenging the constraints or the, or, or, or the, the framework in which the digital yeah. takes place. Yeah. And offering almost a you know an alternative. I, I think there's an ethics to this that I think is really important. And actually, I I can't help thinking that more universities should maybe consider using open source software. Yeah, it, this is coming across quite strongly that this kind of political dimension, and and not over you know political maybe <coughs> with a small p, but that sense in which it's it is bound up with mm. with, with with these wider issues yeah. and these different different elements. But art should be really good at revealing what most people overlook. And that's yeah. part of its function. Mm. And I think I think this is really interesting also because sometimes it seems to me that as soon as a bit of technology goes out of fashion, mm. then artists kind of use it almost as a kind. It, it somehow then goes into a kind of the, the art aesthetic. It, it, it becomes it, cultified. It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. But what's coming across from what you're saying, I think, is that you're resisting that, or that's not actually where you're going with it, you're reassessing it much more from this mm. political and, and for, for other purposes. Yeah, I mean, I do like using this stuff, but I'm also quite cautious of my own desire to like this stuff. It is very seductive. It, and, it is, and, and, and you've got to be really careful with that. Well, maybe this is a good <coughs> point to, to mention or to talk about your River Film project, okay. because that, mm. I, again, I've only seen it on your Vimeo channel yeah. online, you setting it up, but, well, do you want to describe it? But that also yeah. is has this very seductive feel to it. It's, it's, yeah. It looks like oh, a yeah, lovely it, piece of work. But it, it, but it kind of needs to, but it's also noisy in a really uncomfortable way. And Do I'll you want to, yeah, yeah please describe so, it. So there was a conference that happened oh, a couple of years ago now, uh, and I came to it quite late. I thought, I'm going to do some work about this. Uh, or oh, Derwent-wise, that's what it's called. So I thought, right, okay, well, you know, I can get to the, the source of the Derwent and the end of it as well. I put a proposal and I, I got a hold of this Bell on Howe camera for like 50 quid or something off eBay and a couple of lenses. It built like a tank, this thing. It was great. And the idea was, uh, and I had tripods and this kind of stuff. I thought, no, 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 this is going to be handheld because I wanted to use a medium that was physical and I wanted the fact that it was being held, the camera was being held by a human being to be part of the work. There's this kind of sense of embodied embodiment in the process of making. So what I would do, I'd, I'd, I'd stand there and I'd start at the bank and I'd take the camera up other side of the bank then come down again in roughly the same place and the the intention was very early on to create these loops and they might be loops of two meters they might be 15 meters whatever so i, I went to uh up near kinder near bleak low where the derwent is supposed to start where it's about three inches wide you know so some of the footage of that and you know all, all that kind of area and I, I started filming um a number of places i think about 20 different locations and so i i um, put this installation on in the studio downstairs. And it's entirely, look, I ain't got a clue how this is going to turn out. And I managed to get hold of a whole load of projectors by hook or by crook off eBay. So I ended up with about eight or nine projectors that I could use. 
So then I, I edited these these instances down to a number of loops. Some were long, some were short, whatever. And I made these stands, and I was setting this thing up. And the idea was to have uh, this environment, this studio space environment, with images all over the place. But you had to negotiate your way around all these projectors, the loops, the stands, all this kind of stuff. So in a way in which actually you walk around the landscape, you had to walk around the description of the landscape. Now, the other really important thing is that this is, a, I think, is a very political landscape because, of course, it's the birthplace of the Indus Revolution. <laughs> it's the birthplace of all these ecological problems that we're facing with now. So what happened? Well, the, part of the intention of the film, I knew if the films would go round and round and round, they'd start to wear out. They'd scratch in their wear. And so the wear and tear of the description of the environment would be very much apparent in the wear and tear on the film. Film wearing out, environment wearing out. What also happened was that they almost resembled the belts that you get in the factories, in the old factories, in the old mills. What also happened, which I wasn't expecting, is that the spools squeaked like hell on the uh, spindles I'd made. So you didn't just get the chuggy, chuggy, chuggy of the projectors. You got this awful squeak. And I thought, oh my God. But I put some blue tack on the ends of the spindles and it got rid of the squeaks. I thought, no, I want the squeaks. Well, right. I was going to say, that's, yeah, no, that's the, all part the, of no, it, isn't the it? The squeaks were just too yeah. good to actually, you know, I thought, I thought, yeah, this is great. Because it was really uncomfortable. And also, the intention of moving the camera up and down, you had this automation, this repetitive movement, down, up, down, up, down, up. And so you had all these footage going up and down, up and down, up and down. You had all these belts going round and round and round and round. You had this chuggy, chuggy tractor sound of the projectors. You also had this awful high-pitched squeak. And it was great, right? It was it was more of an audio experience than I thought it was going to be, and that was ideal. It was brilliant because it was uncomfortable. It wasn't actually very nice. Yeah, and I didn't want it to be very nice because these factories were awful. You know? Yeah. So although the imagery was of this landscape, some of it was the kind of factories, some of it's like you know a bridge in the middle of Derby or something. Some of it was kind of you know nice rolling hills. It was infused with this nasty noise and this idea of repetition and cycle and wear and tear. So it kind of undid the pastoral qualities of the subject matter, which is a really important point of the work. And that's where the work allowed, I think the work was able to become quite political. That sounds absolutely fascinating, but also um, because just looking at the clip on Vimeo, mm. the, there's a seductive quality to the retro equipment in the same way that if you go to a museum on spinning or factories or yeah. making stuff, you can be simultaneously amazed yeah. at the technology mm. and actually the ingenuity yeah. of setting up these machines, you filter out all the the clatter and the noise that they must have had and how oh, yeah. how how oppressive it must have well, felt to be working there, with them. There are so many paradoxes with all this. I yeah. mean, often you look at the castings, you look at the embellishments, sometimes the decoration. These things are often made with a great deal of care. Yes. But they're also lethal. Interesting. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So there's that there's that tension and that play. You get you get drawn in by because mm. The way in which you've looped the the film, mm. it has this mesmerising quality as it mm. goes around yeah. and it's kind of flowing around, and yet it's also making this terrible yeah. racket. But, but, but we've been mesmerised by industrialisation, by consumerism, by productivity, or else we wouldn't we wouldn't be doing it. You wouldn't be using things like this little tripod and this you know 
this recording. And I wouldn't be using things like Apple Macs and, you know, yeah. we've been mesmerized by this stuff. We don't think about where it comes from, who's made it, their conditions, its impact on its shipping across oceans and that kind of stuff. And, you know, we've got to lead our lives. You can't think about it all the time. But at some point, you've got to think, okay, well, what do I do? What am I going to use? And, and that's one reason, in a way, for actually wanting to use stuff that otherwise people would just dispose of. You've got to be also careful as well because, you know, you're using not very nice chemicals to process this stuff. You, you know, you're with physical forms of photography, you're using things. You're producing more gunk to actually kind of fill the world with, you know. Yeah, you know, various people have said, you know, we've made enough images now. Why don't we just appropriate other people's and actually reinvest them? I can see the point of doing that. I really can. Not necessarily writing new books. Actually use old books to make art with. Why not? I do think it's such a shame that these objects that have been made with a great deal of care, ingenuity, concentration, are just disposed of and no longer used. So I, I do like the idea of actually digging this stuff out and reinvesting some faith in it, in a way. That, yep, yeah, actually... If you use this right, it will do this. So, do you make multiple copies of the of the original? Ah, no, you can't. So you can't it's going to degrade yep. over time. So you're only going to be able to see this. The only way you can make a multiple copy of it is actually to film it again. So it, you're only going to be able to show Absolutely. a limited number of Absolutely. times. Absolutely. And then it's going to disappear. Absolutely. Puff. Yeah. And how how do you feel about that? Tough. That's where it is. If you want something that's pristine, don't use this old cranky stuff. Use digital technologies make make us an infinite number of, of copies. If you're going to actually ponder the physicality of things, then you've got to put up with the fact that with that becomes wear and tear and degradation and whatever. And it's the quality of the work. There was a piece of footage I made, and I really liked it. The projector just ate it. It just kind of chewed oh, it up, no. and I lost it. But that's tough. Yeah. And so I pulled it out and photographed it on the floor, all chewed up and concertinaed. If you don't want to put up with the fact that things aren't happened, just don't use it. Because sometimes these things, these objectors, you know, they're old. They fail. They they sometimes don't work, and that's tough. There's quite a zen-like quality to it all. That you know, that is that is part of the, the cycle of things. Yeah, you have to you have to to a certain extent give yourself over to the qualities of the medium. To a certain extent, it's the it's the equipment and the medium and the stuff you're using that is almost authoring the work. And I, I'm I am very suspicious about ideas about self-expression. I think the whole idea about self-expression in art is so overrated. And I think it's a bit of a con, and I think, I think it's a bit of a myth. Because what happens, especially with students, when they're, when they're chasing originality, they cease to make work sometimes because they don't know what to do. And actually, the best way of actually making work that might have a chance of being you is just go and make some work. Just make some work. Really invest yourself into it. But I think um, the whole idea about self-expression is, 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 yeah, is really problematic. I... Do really like what Barth was saying is death of the author. I think it's really interesting. And I remember another author on photography um, described how Barth seemed to pull the rug from under the artist, undermining the idea about being able to kind of author a piece of work. And I, I don't think it's as simple as that. What Barth says in death of the author, the idea of the maker or the, or the writer or even the storyteller as a conduit, there's only a problem with that if you are wholly bought into the idea of the underlying premise of art being self-expression. If you can put that to one side and think of yourself as a producer, a maker, or whatever, I really like the idea of conduit, a cultural conduit. I mean, why not? Because actually, if you're not being that conduit, how much respect have you got for what's come before? The context 
in which we absorb things now is completely changes the meaning of that work. I'm also a bit of a Heidegger now as well, and, and I think there are elements in Heidegger, I mean, even things... Well, one of my favourite texts by Heidegger is the question concerning technology. I think that's a stunning piece of work. 32 pages, wow, there is so much, so many different strands of thought. Ecology, technology, authorship, making, poetics, wrapped up in those few pages, and wow, is it dense. But it is, it's, it's almost like a call to arms for artists. That's all fascinating. I mean, it's yeah, so many, so many things, so many things in there. I wanted to ask you also. You were talking to me in the break about a little project that you've got in your mind to do with some guitars and oh, a musical right. element yes. to that. Right. Yeah. And that, I, sounded, I, that sounded like a lot of fun. I've but. been really getting into making music and not actually playing other people's music, but making music. Uh, and playing guitar and building valve amps and all this kind of stuff. So I'm going to have four guitars, four amplifiers, four projectors, four four reels of film. The film is of wind blowing through trees, and it was actually it's all been filmed at the start of COVID. And the guitars will be tuned to uh, let me get this right, DGBE, which, which apart from being the chords for so many other pop tunes, are also the, the chords for Bob Dylan's "Blowing in the Wind," which is a protest song. And the idea is that the, the film goes to the projector, but also then goes through the strings of the guitars, which are also amplified. So apart from anything else, it's, it's an excuse to make a dreadful racket. So the film is playing the guitars. Now, in a loop of film, you also have a splice, and splices tend to have rough edges. So when the splice in the film goes through the strings, it goes twang all of a sudden, right? So you get this loud noise. So you get this drone, but also the twang. But also what happens, it wears the film out as well. So you get this footage, but it starts to degrade and what have you. And the idea is that you have this droning of all these chords on these open tune guitars, all rigged up to amplifiers, all making a dreadful racket. Or maybe not, I don't know. It might sound really nice. Might sound like Bob Dylan. Might sound like Bob Dylan. And it'll end when the films break. So it might be five minutes, it might be three hours. I've got no idea. And I have, I have a, a location in mind uh, at Cromford Mills. And that's, of course, is kind of the home of the, of the project because that's, it's about the Industrial Revolution, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. What better place? Near the Cromford Mills, they've got this beautiful 19th century church, this Victorian church. Well, no, actually, that's earlier than Victorian because it's Arkwright's church. And that would be a superb place to stage this work. It really would, because it's a lovely... Well, I had this lovely resonance of the of the church as well. I've got to rehearse it and stage it and test it and what have you. Um, you can't just do this on spec. You've got to really drill down and make sure the damn thing works. No, absolutely. Well, particularly with something as kind of complex as that. It's fascinating because you, on the one hand, want to leave stuff to chance and you don't know how what the duration's going to be. You have be to and plan. It, but you've got, to, yeah. you've got to plan you have, it as well. You have to plan your chance. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. you really do. And what, I'm, I'm also interested about uh, how, so you got you have the idea, you, mm. you can do all that stuff in your studio or on your own, but then that sense of finding a location mm. and getting it staged, how do you approach that? Because that's another layer to oh, it, isn't it? Just meet people and chat to them and try and convince them it'd be a good idea somehow. I mean, I, you know, I, I am privileged to be working here, you know? I have to say, I mean, being in a higher education isn't just a job, it is a privilege, it really is. You are exposing students to the transformative experience of education. It's not a job, it really isn't. Well, it is, but it, it's, it's more than that. You know, you can't go home and just shut down and, and because of that it can be quite stressful and quite draining as well but you know it's a it's a privilege it can be very frustrating and sometimes not everyone buys into the transformative experience of education 
but a lot of people do, and it's wonderful when you see they do. And you know, the the, the growth of people, just as their awareness and whatever you over those three years, is, is is wonderful. And it's not what we do; it's what we facilitate them to do. Well, maybe that is a good time to um, draw things to a close because I wanted to finish by looping round back to your work mm. as a teacher and you just kind of encapsulated that real sense of privilege that you feel about being able to teach art and to mm. have that opportunity to, with, with students, which is wonderful to hear and is, mm. is you know, so important in, in the arts. But also it's been really fascinating to hear about your own practice and, and, and all the different facets to it and the political dimension and the, the analogue and digital. And it's been um, really great to hear. So Well, it's been really nice to t discuss it because actually talking about it makes new thinking happen. Well, that's nice to hear as feedback yeah. as well, because I, I, for me, it's really I'm just always curious mm. to find out what everybody's up to but I hope the flip side is that it then reflects back and oh, gives you something to, no, to feed absolutely. on as well. Because you know you, you make work and sometimes you forget about it. Now you've actually made me think slightly differently about some of the work and thinks oh yeah I'm gonna have to go back and do that and revisit that and whatever. So yeah thank you very much it's been a, an absolute pleasure Robert. Well that's great thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media. And check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.